This morning we continue our study of 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. In our first study, we saw that the resurrection obviously is the heart of the gospel message. It's a matter of faith, something we believe in and base our life on. It's a matter of fact, verified by historical proofs. And it's a matter of first-hand witnesses, the resurrected Christ having been seen by over 500 people at the same time. Then last week, we took a look at the great what if. What if death is the end? What if there is no resurrection? What difference does it make? We noted that Paul pointed out seven things that result if death is really the end. If there's no resurrection, then obviously Christ has not been raised. And if that is true, the gospel message is empty. And therefore, our faith is worthless. The scriptures are proven to be false. We are still in our sin. The dead are gone forever. And we of all men are most to be pitied. Obviously, for a believer, those results would be devastating. But Paul made it clear they are only true if there's no resurrection. Now, we didn't want to leave our study on kind of a negative note last week, so we touched on verse 20, and that's where we want to uh, pick up today. Because here Paul makes a positive assertion about the resurrection and then shows how the resurrection is an absolutely essential part of God's plan. He shows how it is required to cancel the curse of death, to bring us back to God, and to motivate us in life. So let's go back to verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, Paul says Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. That's a little bit of a strange phrase for us, but it has reference to the Feast of the Unleavened Bread that followed the Jewish Passover. The law ordained that on the morning after the first Sabbath following Passover, which just happened to be the same Sunday morning that Jesus arose, Jews were to go to their field and cut a sheaf of barley. They were then to take it to the temple and just wave it before the Lord in thankful anticipation of the harvest to come. And then and only then could they harvest 
their barley and make bread for their families. Well, Paul compares Jesus' resurrection to that first fruits of the harvest. Jesus was the first and the promise of a harvest to come. As Jesus arose, so will many others. Now, some might question the statement that Jesus was the first to be raised, you know. What about Lazarus? The widow of Nain's son and Jairus' daughter. Even further back, what about Elijah? And the widow of Zarephath's son and Elisha and the Shunammite's son. These were all raised from the dead or at least resuscitated and brought back to life. That's true. But none of those who were raised were resurrected as was Jesus. They were merely brought back to the old life they had once had. They would die again. Jesus, on the other hand, was resurrected to a new life form, never to die again. And that's the kind of resurrection we have to look forward to. Not merely being brought back to life, but resurrected to a new life. A life that conquers death. A life that can't be touched by the curse of death. Jesus' life makes that possible. For as Paul says, as death came by a man, so by a man came the resurrection of the dead. Now he's looking back to Adam and his sin that cut mankind off from the presence of God, cutting us off from the source of life and condemning us to death. Paul says Jesus can now give us life. Adam's sin affected all of mankind, causing us all to be born into a fallen world with that same rebellious spirit that he had. So we all inherited death from Adam, from one man. Now, Paul says, we can regain life from one man, Jesus. Jesus conquered death. He broke the curse of death. And if we are in him, we shall be made alive. Now, when he says, we shall all be made alive, he's not teaching universalism. He's not saying that everyone will be saved from the curse of death, from eternal separation from God. He says, in Christ, all shall be made alive. You know, everyone is automatically in Adam. He was our forefather. And everyone did, therefore, inherit death from him. But not everyone is in Christ. We have to choose to be in him. But if we choose to be in Christ, we will be made alive. His resurrection becomes the first fruit of all resurrections. As he was resurrected to a life freed from the curse of death, so shall all who are in Christ 
be resurrected to a life free from death. So death can be conquered, but only through resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus and our subsequent resurrection. Both are absolutely essential if we are to have eternal life. And eternal life with our Heavenly Father is ultimately the whole point of life. So Paul continues. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruit, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. When he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. You know, here we get a glimpse of the goal of all history and how it is achieved through the work of Christ. And Paul begins by telling us when our resurrection will take place, that our resurrection will take place when Jesus comes again. He describes that scene beautifully for us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, he says, comfort one another with these words. What an amazing, amazing passage. When Jesus comes back, those who have died in Christ will be resurrected. And those who are alive when He returns will be changed, will be given a resurrected body without first having to see physical death. And at that time, Jesus will present us to our Heavenly Father. 
Jesus' reign on earth will have been completed, having reigned over His church, the kingdom of God, on earth. And He will bring His reign to a glorious climax by coming back in person to abolish the last enemy, death. At that point in history, everything will be under His subjection. Those who refused to acknowledge His Lordship will be banished forever from His presence and the presence of His people. And Christ will be able to offer the kingdom in all its beauty and purity to the Heavenly Father. Jesus' work as redeeming Son of God and Savior will be finished. And He will be able to once again unite fully with the Father, having brought us back into perfect fellowship with our Creator. The curse of death will have been canceled. We will have been given a new resurrected body equal to the new spirit we were given when we accepted Christ as our Savior. And we will be ready for eternal life with our Heavenly Father on a new earth, a paradise regained. It will be back to the Garden of Eden in fellowship with God as originally intended for us to be. Only this time, we'll be there not just because He created us and put us there, but because we chose to be there. And we accepted His offer of eternal life with Him. It takes the resurrection to make all of this possible. It's a necessary part of God's program to bring us back to Himself. So our future, obviously, depends on the resurrection. But that's not all. It affects our present as well because it's the resurrection that motivates us in life. Let's read on. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought. And stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this. To your shame. We're not in heaven yet. So we have to live a life of faith and obedience in the here and now. And it is the resurrection that motivates us to live a life of faith. 
In fact, the resurrection is required because without it, nothing we do in life, especially as believers, makes any sense at all. And Paul makes that point by giving us some examples, beginning with one that has had us scratching our heads for centuries. He argues, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are they baptized for them? Now, what does he mean there? Well, no one knows for sure what he's talking about. The Mormons use this verse to support their practice of vicarious baptism for those who have died. You know, if you want to get grandma into heaven and she wasn't a a good baptized Mormon in life, you can go to the temple and do it for her. Well, it almost sounds like that's what Paul's referring to here. Some type of vicarious baptism. But nowhere else is this mentioned in Scripture. And we have no record of anyone other than a couple of heretical sects in the second century practicing such a baptism in the early church. And even if that is what he's talking about, Paul doesn't really condone the practice here. He says they do it, but he doesn't condemn it either. And surely such a second chance theology would draw his wrath. So I really doubt that's what he's talking about. So what is he talking about? What is this baptism for the dead? Well, between 30 and 40 suggestions have been made as to what it means, but... Don't worry. We're only going to look at the one that I think is best. And that is that Paul is referring to some in Corinth who had been persuaded to accept Christ because of the faith of a loved one who had died. The word translated for here is not the common word poor. It's a word that's better translated For the sake of. And that seems to fit the picture of, say, a mother dying and appealing to her son to meet her in heaven. And his response is, okay, I'll do it for mom. So I'll be there with her. I'll give myself to Christ and be baptized for her sake. That seems to make sense. And it fits Paul's argument here. He's saying that if there is no resurrection from the dead, what sense does it make to be baptized so you can see someone else who has died? If there's no resurrection, then you'll never see them. They're gone forever, so why bother? Why be baptized? The point he's making is that the resurrection is a great motivating force in our life. Much that we do makes no sense if there's no resurrection from the dead. 
Paul asks, why are we in danger, jeopardizing our lives for the gospel if there's no resurrection? You know, we have no fear of death because of the resurrection. But if there is none, that's foolish. Paul says, I die daily. I offer myself on the altar every day, risking my life for the gospel. Just as surely as I boast about you and your growth in the Lord. Why do we do that? If there's no resurrection, it doesn't make sense. What, Paul asked, did it profit me to fight with wild beasts in Ephesus? If there's no resurrection. Now, We don't know of him actually fighting beasts. He's probably referring to the crowd of angry silversmiths that wanted to kill him. But whatever the case, Paul said no human motive for taking such risks makes sense if there's no resurrection. It makes no sense to needlessly risk your life if when you lose it, You really do lose it. And when you really get down to it, if there is no resurrection, we might as well live loose and sinful lives. Why not just eat, drink, and be merry? If there's no resurrection, why not just do whatever you want to do? Whatever you feel like doing. If it feels good, do it. That makes sense. If there's no resurrection. And then Paul adds, don't don't kid yourself. If you dismiss the resurrection or even associate with those who don't believe in it, your morals will be corrupted. There's no reason to be moral if the only consequences for sin are temporal, especially when we find ways to avoid those consequences. Illicit sex is a prime example today. With antibiotics and contraceptives to deal with the physical consequences of immoral behavior and the general acceptance, even the approval of many in our society, there's no reason not to indulge if there is no resurrection. So Paul says, sober up, wake up. Realize the consequences of even entertaining the thought of no resurrection. And stop sinning. Stop living life as if there were no resurrection. Don't give those who have no knowledge of God the impression that there will be no eternal consequences to a life of sin. There is going to be a resurrection of the dead. Jesus died to prove it and to cancel out the curse of death for those who accept him. 
the plan of God to bring at least some of mankind back to himself demands it. And it is the key motivating factor in living life as God intends us to live it. So the resurrection is required. And it's coming. In fact, it is inescapable. Because even those who refuse to accept Jesus will be resurrected. Only they'll not be resurrected to life. They will be resurrected to eternal death. Jesus made that clear in John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice. And shall come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. The resurrection is coming. You cannot avoid it. What it will be for you is up to you. Jesus is calling you to life. He died and rose again to be able to offer eternal life to you. Now is the time to choose life.